Christmas. Today, we're in the third week of our Advent series. And two weeks ago, Amanda started our series by walking us through the first half of the first chapter of Matthew, which is a genealogy, a list of names. And as we walked through that, Amanda pointed us towards how this is so much more than just a list of names. It's a list of names that points us to the kind and type of Savior that Jesus is going to be, a Savior for all people. And then last week, Pastor Shaq walked us through the second half of Matthew chapter 1, where he paid particular attention to the humanity of Joseph and the situation in which Joseph found himself and the way that God met him and saw him and cared for him as Joseph stepped into this role of becoming this earthly father of the Son of God. And today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see the Magi as they arrive and they ask King Herod, who is king over the region of Judea, about this child king that was born. We're going to see Joseph and his family flee to Egypt. We're going to see them at the end of the chapter return from Egypt and settle in a town called Nazareth. And through it all, we'll see that the kingdom of God arrives not in the form of a powerful political leader. That the kingdom of God does not arrive in the form of a skilled military leader. That the kingdom of God does not arrive in the form of a wealthy business leader. Instead, we'll see that the kingdom of God arrives in the form of a weak and vulnerable child who will be raised at the margins and outskirts of Jewish society. So let's pray together, and then we'll start into Matthew chapter 2. Father, thank you that we can be gathered together. Father, we believe every week as we gather, we do it as family, that we are sisters and brothers scattered across the neighborhood and the city, and that we come together as family to connect, to encourage, to support, to build up, to lament. And Father, to be encouraged and to be reminded of who you are and how faithful you are and the ways that you show up in our lives and our world, the ways that you care for us. And so, Father, we just want to come to you now and ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us understand this story as it connects to our lives today, that we might be your people here in the neighborhood and throughout the city. We love you, Jesus, and pray in your son's name. Amen. So our story, begins in, our story begins this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So let's just take a moment and stop there. And take note of a few things in these first six verses. First, Matthew is specific in naming the time into which Jesus is born. 
He identifies it as the time of King Herod. Matthew is situating the birth of Jesus historically, socially, culturally, politically. It's a detail that's intended to create context for us. Herod is what is known as a client king. He has been appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over this region in Judea. And he's achieved this position through ruthless warfare and shrewd political maneuvers. We also know that Herod is a wildly insecure leader. That Herod put on trial two of his own sons and then had them executed because he perceived them to be a threat to his rule and his throne. It's likely that Herod encouraged the Jewish people in the region to worship him as a deity, and that he rewarded Jewish prophets who would tell the Jewish people that he was actually the Messiah. False prophets who would validate his reign as the rightful king over the Jewish people. In essence, Herod created an entire framework by which people perceived him to be the long-awaited Messiah and then permitted people to worship him as such. Second, Matthew tells us that magi from the east arrive, and they ask Herod, this king who has established himself as the Messiah, who has encouraged and allowed people to worship him as being the Messiah, these magi from the east arrive and ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now the magi are this mix of astrologers and priests from Persia. And they've watched the skies and they saw a star rise that in their interpretation signaled the birth of a new king. And so they followed that star to the region of Judea and they went to the place that made sense to them to go when looking for a new king. They went to the center of cultural power, Jerusalem, and they went to the king's palace. The only problem is that Herod has not had a child. And the Magi's question is deeply unsettling to Herod. Matthew tells us that when Herod heard the Magi's question, he was disturbed. It's a word that when it's translated from the Greek into the English, we lose some of its meaning. Because the meaning is actually this, to stir up or to cause a riot. That's how deeply disturbed Herod is by this question. He is stirred up. It's such a strong emotion that it's used in other places in Scripture to describe a riot starting. And it makes sense that Herod would be this stirred up. He's positioned himself as the Messiah. He's the person known as the King of the Jews. And here, the Magi show up and signal to him that somewhere in the region he oversees a challenger to his throne has been born. Now, we might not read this passage and interpret it the same way that Herod does. We might not understand the birth of Jesus quite in the same way that it seems Herod does. Herod clearly interprets Jesus' birth as an event 
with significant cultural and political implications. But most of us have not been taught to read scripture that way. Most of us have not been taught to read this particular story in this way. We've been taught, many of us, that faith is a private matter and religion is an individual act. Many of us have been taught that Jesus' life and ministry don't have any political implications whatsoever. But if we read the story, Herod doesn't see it that way. Herod is well aware of the political implications of Jesus' birth. Herod knows that he is not actually the Messiah. Herod knows that he's not the legitimate king of the Jews. Herod knows that he's not descended from the line of David. And the arrival of this child king risks revealing Herod to be the fraud that he knows he is. And if Herod is revealed as the fraud that he is, it puts at risk all of his political power and financial wealth that he's worked so ruthlessly to acquire. And there's another notation here, another detail that Matthew throws in. Because it seems that Herod isn't the only one in the region who perceives Jesus' birth as having significant political implications. Because Matthew tells us all of Jerusalem is disturbed too. That all of Jerusalem is also stirred up. That the disturbance they're experiencing is such a strong kind of disturbance that it could cause a riot. It's interesting that all of Jerusalem is troubled along with Herod because it seems to indicate that the Jewish people were more interested in maintaining political, social, and economic stability than they were in welcoming the Savior of the world. It seems that at least in Jerusalem, the Jewish people's desire for comfort ran deeper and stronger than their longing for deliverance. But it's not only the Jewish people whose desire for comfort seems to run deeper than their longing for salvation. Because in verse 4, Matthew tells us that Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. Herod has all of the Jewish religious leadership at his beck and call. They have willingly aligned themselves with him. The priests and scribes, they represent the religious ruling class, and they have allied themselves with Herod. It's as though despite how evil, unjust, and oppressive Herod is, the religious leaders have discovered that by compromising their convictions, they can find themselves a place of power culturally they wouldn't otherwise be able to enjoy. I mean, you would think that these religious leaders, after hearing the Magi's question, would drop everything and travel with the Magi to go and find this child king so that they too could worship him. But no. Instead, they answer Herod's call, they 
tell him the information he wants, that the child will be born in Bethlehem. And then the Jewish religious leaders who supposedly should have been waiting in eager anticipation for centuries for the arrival of the one who will deliver them and set them free, finally and fully, instead of going to worship him, they go back to their normal lives. They just turn around and go back. Like nothing has even happened. And it's all of this that creates context for the next two sections of this chapter. Because after learning where the Messiah was prophesied to be born, Herod dispatches the Magi and tells them, when you find this child king, and after you worship him, return to me. Tell me where you found him so that I too can go and that I too can worship him. And in verse 13, after the Magi have found Jesus and presented him with gift, gifts, Matthew tells us this, beginning in verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under. We're told that the Magi and Joseph are both given warnings in a dream by an angel. The Magi are warned about Herod's plan, and so after worshiping Jesus, they return to their homeland by a different route. And Joseph, warned about Herod's plan, takes his young family and flees in the middle of the night to Egypt. It's now the second and third time in just the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel that Matthew Matthew shows us God intervening in the story. It's an indication of how intimately involved, God is in ensuring his plan of salvation comes to fruition and completion. God sends his son, and then God intervenes to ensure the safety and protection of his son and his son's parents. And it's yet another reminder that God is not a far-off God, that he's not a distant God. He's not an uninterested God. He's not an uninvolved God. Instead, it's a reminder that he is a God who continually draws near to his people, who is intimately involved in the lives of his people, and who will stop at nothing to ensure that his people are set free once and for all. Story continues in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Twice more, God intervenes. Twice more, God dispatches an angel to speak to Joseph 
enabling Joseph to care for Jesus and his family. Twice more, God intimately engages the story of his son in order to ensure that salvation will come. The last thing in this chapter I want to note is where the family settles. It's seemingly at the instruction of an angel that Joseph and his family ultimately settle in Nazareth. It's not an insignificant detail. Not only in settling in Nazareth does that fulfill an Old Testament prophecy, but it also tells us a bit about who this Jesus will be. Nazareth is a town of approximately 500 people. It's significantly smaller than the north side. It was a tiny agricultural village. I think just to go back, just for context, the north side's total population is 35,000. Jesus is raised in a town of 500. It's an uneventful and unimportant place. It's a small and insignificant village. Jesus is raised intentionally at the margins and outskirts of Jewish culture and society. It enables Joseph to raise his family in relative obscurity, free from any and all threats on Jesus' life. But what does all of this have to say to us? In this place, in this time, about Advent, the arrival of Jesus. Three things, I think. First, the arrival of Jesus shakes and challenges every unjust, evil, and oppressive political system. Every one of them. His mere arrival is enough to shake Herod and all of Jerusalem. I mean, the Magi show up and all they do is ask a question. And it disturbs Herod. It troubles him deeply and all of Jerusalem's residents to their core. Herod's power is so insecure and so fraudulent that the arrival of an infant is enough to send him into a murderous rage. In the Gospel of Luke, we overhear Mary as she sings a song, a song of praise, after learning that she would give birth to the Messiah. And in that song is this lyric. It's Luke 1, verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is the kind of Savior we anticipate. This is the kind of Savior whose arrival we look forward to. It isn't just in Jesus' day that evil, unjust, and oppressive political leaders and systems have been used to build authoritarian ways of ruling over people. We see it in our day, too. And it isn't just in Jesus' day that faith leaders, religious leaders, would compromise their convictions 
and abandon the ways of the kingdom in hopes of either gaining or holding on to political and cultural power and influence. We're seeing that in our day, too. In fact, many of us have seen it ourselves. We've watched everyday religious people, even in our own families, embrace this. Church, the Savior who arrives in Bethlehem is a Savior who will upset the status quo. The Savior who arrives in Bethlehem is a Savior who will disrupt the political powers of our day. The Savior who arrives in Bethlehem is a Savior who will bring down evil and unjust political leaders and systems so that people can be set free. Sisters and brothers, take heart. Our Savior has arrived and these systems and leaders will be toppled and torn down. Second, the arrival of Jesus, it reminds us that the way of the kingdom is marked by weakness and vulnerability and obscurity. Jesus arrives as an infant. He's small and weak and dependent. As a child, he becomes a refugee seeking asylum in Egypt. And in this time, like today, immigrants were exceptionally vulnerable people. Jesus, with his family, is forced to wander from place to place. Something that will be said about Jesus later in the Gospels is true of him here. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. And after returning from Egypt, Jesus and his family settle in Nazareth, a small and culturally insignificant town. I mean, we might forget that later in the Gospels, one of the people who would become Jesus' disciple, Nathaniel, when he first met Jesus, asked a question that demonstrated a widespread cultural belief at the time. Nathaniel asked this in John 1.45, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? In the New Testament book, Hebrews, we are reminded, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So many of us feel weak. So many of us feel vulnerable. So many of us feel insignificant. We don't know how to muster the emotional or spiritual strength to fight through another day. We've been under attack with people and situations and circumstances constantly coming against us. And we're not sure our defenses can hold up one more day. We're from neighborhoods that people who don't live in these neighborhoods only know through the news. People who will hear where we're from and ask, can anything good come from there? We walk through our days wondering if anyone sees us, if anyone notices us, if anyone can tell just how much we're carrying, just how beaten down and defeated we feel, just how difficult it is to keep moving forward, to keep raising kids, to keep going to work, to keep being a friend, to keep being a child, to keep being a spouse, to just keep being. Church, the child who arrives and is born in Bethlehem in obscurity, who upsets the status quo, and brings down rulers, he knows what we are enduring. 
He knows our afflictions and our worries, our fears and our doubts and our insecurities. And he still moves toward us. He still comes for us. And he still offers to us his strength and his significance. Take heart, sisters and brothers. Our Savior has arrived. He's with us. He's holding us. And in him and through him and by him, we are made strong and significant too. Last. The arrival of Jesus signals that we will once and for all experience true liberation. In verse 15, Matthew writes these words. He writes, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea, who records these words in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a tactic used by New Testament writers to quote the first verse of an Old Testament passage and in so doing, call into the imagination of all of their readers the entirety of the chapter. Matthew is desiring to evoke all of Hosea chapter 11 in the minds of his readers. He wants their imagination to be filled with the totality of Hosea 11 when they are thinking about this child king. Because later in Hosea 11, the prophet writes these words, They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. They will come from Egypt and Assyria. Hosea is referencing both times that the Israelites find themselves in captivity and were then set free, first in Egypt, then in Assyria, when they had been conquered by the Babylonians and dragged into captivity and forced to live in exile. Hosea goes on to say that not only will God work to set his, free from, his people free from captivity, but that he also brings them home. That he doesn't just set them free, he also creates a home and then brings his people out of their captivity and into the homes that he has created for them. When Hosea says, I will settle them in their homes, it's literally Isaiah speaking for God and God saying, I will establish a place for my people. Matthew is connecting the work that Jesus will do with the work that God has been doing all the way back starting in Exodus chapter 1. Church. The arrival of Jesus inaugurates a new exodus. A time of ultimate salvation where Jesus will meet his people inside of their captivity and oppression and set them free once and for all. Jesus is charting a path through the wilderness to a new and eternal promised land. Sisters and brothers, he's still doing this work today. In our own hearts, in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, in our city. His work is still the work of Exodus, of setting us and our spouses and our children and our parents and our siblings and our neighbors free.
So many of us need to be set free. We're still in bondage to sin. We're still enslaved to the ways of the world. We're still experiencing oppression and marginalization. And we can hold on to hope for ourselves and our spouses, our parents and our children, our friends and our neighbors, for everyone. Jesus' arrival reminds us that God is still doing the work of liberating people and then leading them out of their captivity and depression into a new promised land and a new home that he himself has created for every one of his people. The story in Matthew 2, it reminds us this Advent that the Savior whose arrival we are desperately awaiting is a Savior who will shake and challenge evil and unjust political leaders and systems. He is a Savior who will meet us in our weakness, vulnerability, and obscurity and speak strength to us and significance to us. And that he's a Savior who will complete the work that was started all the way back in Exodus 1 and set us free and establish a home for us. This is the Savior we anticipate as a community. This is the Savior we anticipate as a family this Advent season. A Savior who's so good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words in Matthew 2. Would you settle them into our hearts? Would you make us your people? Would we look more like you and love more like you and be gentle more like you? Father, we love you and pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.